happening. Today, the message is called the chameleon effect. Does everybody know what a chameleon is? Yeah. I'll give you a clue. There's a picture of one on the screen. Okay, that's what a chameleon is. Everybody knows, well, most people know what a chameleon is. It's a lizard that has this incredible ability to change color and fit in with its surroundings. It's just an amazing creature. If you want to kill, they say if you want to kill a chameleon, put him down on a piece of tartan, if you know what tartan is. Anyway, the chameleon has this amazing ability to fit in with its surroundings. And it's always been understood that chameleons have this skill so that they can hide when they're afraid when they're being hunted, and also they can camouflage themselves when they are hunting, when they're doing both. They have this incredible ability, one of God's most amazing creations. There's also a thing in psychology that's called the chameleon effect. And it's an effect that affects all of us because we all, to some extent or another, are chameleons. All of us, to some extent or another, use um, what God has given us, use our abilities to, to fit in with people. Otherwise, we would be horrible and nobody would like us. We use the ability to be socially able to communicate and to connect with other people. That's a really, really important skill. In some senses, we are all chameleons. Some of us are more chameleons than others. I know somebody who once said it to me. I think they meant it as an insult. They said, ah, you're just a bit of a chameleon. You fit in everywhere. Well, what I do is I fit in, I try to make people comfortable and at home. And so what happens is, believe it or not, when I'm talking to people, if I'm talking to somebody with an English accent, they say, where are you from? I'm from Manchester. I say, well, you're very welcome this morning. It's good to have you here. <laughs> or somebody comes from South Africa, where are you from? I'm from South Africa. You lads, you know this one. I say, yeah, you're very welcome here this morning. And none, not like this, giving out about my South African accent. Because I can't do your one. I feel I've tried. Um, or some reason from Dublin, how is it going? I'm coming to church this morning. I say, yeah, it's great to have you here this morning. I just, I, I can't help it. But you know the thing about this, that imitation is not mockery, it's flattery. People actually warm to you when you do what they do. So a guy who walks up to you, I guess, let me give, give, give me a man. Um, you, you, Liam, you'll do. Come on, come up here. See, we, see, people like it when you do the same as they do. Just bear with this for a second, guys. This is Liam. Say hi, Liam. Hi, Liam. Liam is a man. <laughs> so if I walk, if Liam walks, if I walk up to Liam and I put my hand up to get like kind of a you know kind of a solid manly handshake, and I walk up, hey Liam, how are you? Yeah, you know, we do that. But if Liam comes up to me and puts his hand up like that, and give me your hand, come on, Liam, invite me, and I go, yeah, hello, how are you? It's kind of incongruous. Has it ever happened to you? You go to hug someone and they go, and they back off. So if I go see him, see, if I walk up to Liam and I want to give him a manly bear hug, so I walk up to Liam, manly bear hug coming up. One, two, three, full frontal. Here we go. Oh, I could stay there all day. He's a fine man. So Liam, but if I walk up to Liam and Liam wants to give me a hug, right? So you walk up to me, hi Liam, how are you? It's lovely to see you. You see, this is the way that you create distance socially, but to create connection socially, you do the same. Thank you, Liam. God bless your brother, you're a man. You're the man. Let's give it up for Liam. You see my point? Probably not the best illustration, but it'll do. You get the point. You get the point. You connect with people. When they go to shake your hand, you shake their hand. When they go to give you a hug, you generally kindly give them a hug. Unless they're really weird, then you don't do it at all. And you phone the guardy as quick as you can, okay? If strangers are doing it. But we all have this sense of the chameleon. We're all fitting in to some degree. And it's really, really important. It's an important skill to have. I also want to look, however, today 
at the idea that being a chameleon, while it can sometimes be what they call a pro-social activity, can also be a very negative activity and it can be something that can actually cause trouble in our lives. I want to, as I was saying about the chameleon, when I was reading some studies about the chameleon, are you going to go for me? You are. I was reading some studies about the chameleon, I was trying to understand what it was that the chameleon was doing, and they kept on, I kept on reading reports, or I kept on reading articles and paragraphs that said, when the chameleon thinks that he's in danger, as though a chameleon thinks, chameleons don't think, they just do things entirely by instinct. They don't go, ah, I see there is another creature coming that may kill me. I think I shall have to change color now and hide lest he see me. That's not what chameleons are like. Chameleons, they just automatically, subconsciously, if you will, blend into their background. As I said a couple of weeks ago, we're all imitating other people. We do it sometimes actively and intentionally. We do it with malice aforethought, as it were, we've thought about it in advance. And in other situations, we, are, we do it passively or unconsciously. We imitate people all the time. And we all do it, and we all do it all the time. And knowing this, the writers of the New Testament, the writers in the Bible, knew that it's in human nature to go the way of the crowd. It's in our nature to follow the crowd, because to follow the crowd is actually quite, what I said earlier, it's quite pro-social. It's, it's actually, we actually connect with people when we go with them. Here's what Paul writes to the Christians. I quoted this a couple of weeks ago, and I'll quote it again. This is what Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. Now, the reason he was writing to the Christians in Rome, the reason that he makes this statement to the Christians in Rome, is that the Christians in Rome lived in a very pagan city. And in that pagan city, they had what were known as the Lares. The Lares were basically were the local gods. They, every household had its own little gods. They'd have an altar in most houses. There was an altar where they worshipped the gods. The local town would have gods. The local council had gods. If you remember, of a masonry guild, or an accountancy guild, or a carpentry guild, each guild had its own gods. Each district had its own gods. Each tribe and each family and clan unit all had their own gods. And in that culture, if you wanted to get on, you worshipped the gods of the locals. So when you went to someone's house, you would normally go in and the first thing you do when you went into a Roman's house is you would offer what's normally called a libation. You'd pour out a little drop of wine or a little drop of water or a little drop of milk at the altar to show that you were honouring the local gods, you see? And so this was everywhere in Roman society. It was absolutely everywhere. Everywhere you went, you had to honour the local gods. But the Christians, of course, they stopped honoring the local gods because they said there is only one true God. There is only one king and his name is Jesus. That was the one that they began to worship. And so they were under incredible pressure, under incredible social pressure to conform to the culture around them. In actual fact, they very often would be considered incredibly antisocial and they would be considered as putting families and towns and localities and districts and crafts in danger if they didn't worship the local gods. You know you understand where they're coming from. It was an antisocial behavior that they had begun to involve in. And that's why Paul writes this. He writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently. Then you'll be able to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now the two words that are used in this phrase here, conform and transform, are only used once in the entire New Testament. The exact constructions are only used once. The word for conform 
uh, indicates the idea of being pressed into shape from the outside. Pressure from the outside. He's saying, don't let the culture shape who you are, what you believe, and what you do. Don't let the culture fit you into its mold of the kind of person you need to be. But he says, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word that's used here for transform is the word metamorphoste. Metamorphosta, from which we get the word metamorphosis. Are you familiar with the word metamorphosis? Let me give you an idea of what metamorphosis is. Has, does anybody here know of the Hulk? Anybody ever hear of the Hulk? Yeah, you know the Hulk? You know that scene in the Hulk where, you know, David Banner, or David Bruce Banner as he was, when we, when we were growing up, we used to watch it on TV, and Lou Ferrigno was the Hulk. He, he, he would say, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Yeah, do you remember that line? Are you with me? Grace Christian Church, Sunday morning. Come on, you're here. So he'd say, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me angry. But then they'd inevitably make him angry. And he would suddenly, his eyes would go, and his body muscles would start to ripple and he'd turn green. And his shirt would rip off. But for some bizarre reason, his jeans never ripped off. I can never understand that. It never made sense to me. How come his jeans are still on? Kind of, they're okay, they're up to here. And somehow, he seemed, sometimes managed to cut them at the knee with perfect fit, a pair of jeans. But all his shirt would be ripped off. And, go, and that was the Hulk and he was going around the place like that. I mean, it's not very realistic. But that's called a metamorphosis. To change from one thing to the other from the inside. A better example, perhaps, is the, is the example of the butterfly. So everybody knows what a caterpillar is. Do you know what a caterpillar is? So a caterpillar is ugly. I've never seen a beautiful caterpillar. Have you ever seen a beautiful caterpillar? Never seen a beautiful caterpillar. They're ugly. They've got loads of legs and little kind of pointy things at the front, and they're all hairy. Oh, they're horrible things. They're just ugly. But then one day, something happens to them, right? And they go into what's known as a chrysalis stage, and they wrap up in a cocoon, and while they're inside in that cocoon over a period of days, they transform, like the Bible says, metamorphose, they, they transform into a butterfly. And then the chrysalis breaks open, and out comes the butterfly, who last week was a caterpillar, and now he comes out, and he sees his wings, and he goes, whoa, what are these for? And he starts flapping his wings, and next thing he feels himself lifting off the ground, like last week I was eating leaves, but now I'm flying around the place, and he feels the wings, and he feels the lift and he can realize that suddenly he's been transformed into a butterfly forget Red Bull God will give you wings yeah. he will transform you from the inside out we never change from the outside in because we change from the inside out. We're changed by a process that works its way from the inside out. We're changed in three ways. A process of three things. First of all, we believe. We believe things. We believe truth, our lies, about people, about others, about, about others, about God, about ourselves. First of all, we believe things. And as, we, as our beliefs change, so does our behavior. We begin to behave in a different way when we believe things about people. It's very, very interesting. And then how we behave eventually becomes who we are and then we become that very person you see so first of all I have to believe that the child is my son it is my son and then they behave like I was a good father and lo and behold guess what happened in the end you become a good father because you change the nappy and you 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 wipe his nose and you wipe all the parts that need to be wiped and you feed him and you clean up the slop and all that kind of stuff so you start off by believing then you behave and then you become are you with me because our beliefs are driving the whole operation. This bit up here is driving the whole operation, brothers and sisters. So what we believe has a massive effect on how we value other people. 
If we think other people are in the way, if we think other people are trouble, if we think other people are out to get us, we will behave in that manner. And then we will become nasty, unkind, uncompassionate people. That that is not what God wants for us. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? By the way, do you know what the word amen means? Just for the word it's worth. New Testament, when you see the word amen, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, literally translated, I tell you the amen. Amen means truth. No, can I get an amen? amen? Truth. Here's the thing. We're all surrounded. We're all surrounded by people. And the thing about it is we don't realize the effect that those people are having on us. Having on us. There's a, a, an English professor called Fiona Morden. She wrote a brilliant book about what are called mirror neurons in our mind. And that is that the mirror neurons, they're in our brains. And what happens is when we mimic the activity and behavior, the speech patterns, the walk patterns, or the movements of other people, these mirror neurons light up and we begin to fit in with other people. When we refer to fitting in, it can be a physical thing. Here's what Fiona Morden writes down. He says, most of us are completely unaware of the strongest influence in our life, the behavior of those around us. She wrote this in her book, Mirror Thinking, which was all about these mirror neurons. And in actual fact, what, we, what she didn't realize is what the Bible has known and what Christians and people of faith have known for generations, for centuries. And that is that when we do things in unison, it is a unifying thing. It connects us. It puts us together. Are you with me? Is this church? Is it? Yes, this church. Will you stand up for a second? Let me show you something. Let me stand up. I'm going to have to shout here now a bit, so I'm going to leave the mic over here so maybe I can be heard. I won't be heard, I won't be heard. Um, so this is what I want you to do, right? Will you raise your right hand for me, just for a second? Everyone? No, so put it down for a second. I want you to do it at the same time when they come to three. One, two, three. And down. And again, up. One, two, one. One, two, three. Up she goes. Okay, that's excellent. That's excellent. It's like the Nuremberg rallies. It's amazing. Okay. Um, no, this is what I want you to do next. I want you to clap. When I count to three, I'd like you to clap, okay? On the count of three. One, two, three. Good, good, good. You know, pick up space there. Somebody's falling right behind you. Okay. On the count of three. One, two, 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 three. What you did there puts you in unison with other people. This part of your brain has just lit up. Look, I'm the same as everyone else. Isn't it wonderful? And that's actually God's intention for you. So don't do your sense. We're intended to build one another up. That's why Paul said, imitate me as I, I better pick up my microphone. That's why Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He said, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to imitate each other. That's why when Rawls says, why don't we all stand and worship at the end? And remarkably, most of us stand up and worship at the end. Why? Because that is what we do to express our unity with one another and that we are part of this community and part of this family. Can I get an amen? amen. That's what we do. You see, and we do it all the time. We do it with our voices and everything. A couple of months ago, or a couple of years ago, I was on my way home on a Friday night from Deer Park. We used to do a kids' camp over in Deer Park. And on my way home, I stopped off and brought my three 
sons into the Cork City football ground. Anybody know where the Cork City football ground is? It doesn't matter. You probably won't be going there now, but for what it's worth, right? So we went to the Cork City football ground. And we went up into the terrace, it's known as the shed, and there was this huge crowd of young fellas, all young fellas, all up in the shed. And they're shouting this, they're saying, City! 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 And I thought to myself, this isn't Turner's Cross, isn't it? This isn't Manchester. City! City! And then the ref did something and started shouting, Who are ya? Who are ya? Who are ya? Who are ya? You're from Ballyfeehan, like where'd you get the accent from? All they were doing was mimicking what they saw the football fans on the TV in England doing. Who put the ball in English net? We did. We like, you're from Ireland. Because we mimic and we do it all the time. We do it to fit in. We do it to fit in all the time. Um, we were, I was at a game years and years ago, uh, hurling a football game, and of course, down, down in Parky Quay, when I was a young fellow, when I was wild and young, and I was singing, we were singing all these songs for, for the rebels, Cork are known as the rebels, up the rebels! And uh, they're known as the rebels, and, and when we were, we were singing the rebels, we, we, people would start a song, and they'd start to know, we are red, we are, actually maybe not that song, um, um, oh, and we'd sing all these, we'd sing all these rebels songs, by where we sported and played, neat the green leafy shade, on the banks of my own lovely lee. And we were all singing and chanting. And next thing, this guy, who's wearing a red t-shirt and a pair of glasses that made him clearly look like he was from the Cork Communist Party, stood up in the middle of the crowd and said, even Stalin was a red doodah. And I was saying, it didn't quite fit, you know, he kind of missed the point. The thing about it is that we do, we mirror people all the time. And of course, the most important thing is that we mirror the good things about people. And we model the way, as I said last week, we model the way that Jesus lived. But you know, mirroring people and social pressure and the power and social pressure to conform can be extremely dangerous. In his brilliant book, Ordinary Men, Christopher R. Browning writes the story of Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the final solution in Poland. And in this story, he tells the story of ordinary men who joined the German uh, Wehrmacht in the middle of World War II, and they were a reserve battalion. These men were good men. They were decent men. They were kind men, good fathers, good husbands, good brothers, good neighbors, good workers. They were from the guilds, they worked in carpentry, they were butchers, they were shoemakers, they were plumbers, they were accountants, they were lawyers who had joined a reserve police battalion normally because they were too old to serve in the main army. And what happened was, halfway through the war in 1943, this reserve battalion was sent into central Poland to oversee the policing of Nazi rule in Poland. And these men thought, you know, they wanted to be loyal to their country. They went into Poland. They thought that they were supporting the work of their country. And as they went in there, they arrived. And they arrived in a town called Josephow, about two days after they arrived in a town called Josephow. And two days after, arrived, after they arrived at dawn, they were gathered together, this uh, regiment of men. And the commander stood up and he said, Our job today is to round up all of the Jews men, women and children in the town of Josephau, bring them to the woods and execute them, every one of them. The men were shocked. They couldn't believe it. It was such a shocking command that they were given. And the commander said, 
You don't have to do this. If you wish, you can choose to drop out. Um, you can drop out of this command. You, you can choose to walk away. And some of the men said, yeah, I, I, I'm not doing this. They walked away initially. Some of them walked away and then came back. And then the rest of them went about their business and did exactly as they were instructed. Christopher Browning's book actually has some dialogue where he records the events of the day. If you have Netflix, I know many of you do have Netflix, there's a documentary called Ordinary Men on it as well, worth the watch. Here's what Christopher Browning wrote about the events of that day. He said the battalion, the battalion had orders to kill Jews, but each individual did not. And yet 80 to 90% of the men proceeded to kill, though almost all of them, at least initially, were horrified and disgusted by what they were doing. He says this, to break ranks, to step out, to adopt an overtly non-conformist behavior was simply beyond most of the men. It was easier for them to shoot than to step on a line. It was easier for them to shoot than be considered a coward or a traitor or disloyal or weak or to break the rules within the regiment. It was easier for them to kill than it was to step out of line because social pressure and peer pressure and conformist pressure is very powerful, brothers and sisters. It has a powerful effect on us. You see, something that we don't realize about the chameleon or that's now becoming clear, is that he changes color for two reasons. One is that he changes color so that he can fade into the background when he's being hunted, and also when he can, so, so that uh, he can hide, or so that he can camouflage himself while he hunts. The other reason, however, is that he changes color so that he can stand out. He takes the opportunity to stand out when there's another male chameleon knocking around, then he's gonna fight him, or if there is a female around and he wants to mate with her. So he has the ability to both cha to change color, both to fit in and to stand out. And for us as Christians, God has called us in our churches to love one another and show compassion. He's called us to fit in with the community, with the body, to work in harmony with fellow Christians. But in our culture and in our society and in our world, he's called us to stand out. He says, be different from the culture, but be in the church. You should love and show compassion and build one another up. Be, he says, observe the unity of the body, he says, the Christian body. Why? Because it's full of grace and love and mercy and goodness. As Moses said to his father-in-law, come with us, we'll do you good. It does you good. But in the culture, he tells us that we should be standing out. He tells us that we should stand out. Jesus said it himself. Here it is, Matthew 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You are the salt of the earth, he says. You are the salt of the earth. He says, you are the world's light, a city glowing on a hill in the night for all to see. Don't hide your light. Can I get an amen? amen. Don't hide your light. Yes. God has given you the light. Shine the light wherever you are, wherever you work, whatever you do. Shine the light. And you're salty. 
And you know, I've read loads of I've read loads of commentaries. I've read loads of background studies on this idea of what what it means when he says you will salt of the earth. And there's all sorts of theories and ideas put forward. But the bottom line is this: we all know what salt tastes like, right? That it's quite distinctive. That when you taste salt, you know that something is very salty, don't you? Because there's a distinctive flavour from it. When I was in Spain on holiday recently, Elma and I we went on holidays over to a place in Spain, and we indulged ourselves in what we do only when we're in Spain, sort of. Um, and that is that every afternoon we would go up and we would buy crisps. And we would go up and we'd eat very large bags of crisps, believe it or not, as our kind of afternoon snack. It was kind of, you know, we had to, you know, you have to feed the body too. So when we went up to this place called the Mercadona, this huge supermarket, we went in these huge bags of crisps. And we got these bags of crisps cooked in olive oil. And I would get salted crisps, because I like salted crisps. But Elma managed somehow to find unsalted crisps. Unflavoured crisps. Crisps with no flavour. <laughs> and we bought the crisps, went back to our apartment, poured a glass of orange juice, sat down, began to eat our crisps and we're munching. How are the crisps? Oh, the crisps are lovely crisps. And I'd say to Elma, how are your crisps? Oh, she said, they're delicious. Oh, the crisps are delicious. Would you like a taste? And what she actually wanted was a taste of mine. You're not going to say, would you like some? Because I really want some of yours. Said, it's a husband and wife thing. You had to be there. But um, she said, would you, would you like a taste? And I said, sure, I'd like a taste. Right after the unsalted crisps. Never had the likes so of put them into my mouth. <laughs> How are they? They're gorgeous. <laughs> Honest to goodness, I might as well have eaten the packet. There was just no flavour off them. And she really liked them. She really liked them. But I thought they were awful. Imagine crisps with no salt in them. And you know something? Sometimes when we fit in with the culture, we become Christians who taste like cardboard. <laughs> There's nothing distinctive about us when we just conform. When we're just like everyone else. And that's why Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. Yeah. Be distinctive. Yeah. Be different. Show that there's a flavor yeah. of you. Show that the flavor yeah. from you is different yeah. from the flavor to the fellow yeah. next to you. Show it by your love and your grace and your favor yeah. and your kindness. Show them by your good works. Do it. Yeah. Show that you're different. That's what he says. Yeah. Amen. You see, I love what, what Rick Warren says. Rick Warren's a brilliant pastor, a brilliant leader, a great church leader, a great preacher. Uh, and he wrote in his fantastic book, The Purpose Driven Life, which I would recommend to any Christian of any age, no matter how long you've been a Christian, I recommend you read it. It's really good. This is what he said. He said, remember, you have only one person to please. One person. That's not your wife and that's not your husband. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Yeah. Now, come on, we try hard enough. That's not your husband that's not your wife. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Okay. If I do, if what I do pleases God, it is always the right thing to do. And this dramatically simplifies life. We have less ethical concerns. We have less social worries. We have less fear of hurting somebody's feelings. If we do what pleases God, it's always the right thing to do. And when we do that, we will taste different and we will shine our light before men. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Are you with me? Okay, hope you are. I want to look very briefly at a passage of scripture from the Old Testament before we wrap up. And that is, this is the story from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now to give you a picture, 1 Samuel chapter 8 comes after a period known as the Judges. So there's Moses, and then there's Joshua, and then there's the period known as the Judges. And during the period of the Judges, 
There's continuous refrain, it's kept on being said. It says at the end of Deuteronomy, it says it in, in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was not a great time. The nation rose and fell. They were entrapped by their enemies, and then God would release them. He would send what was known as a judge, and the judge was like a prophetic king that ruled the nation for a period of time, and brought God's opinion, and brought God's judgment, and, brought, and led the people in battle. So the last of these judges is a guy called Samuel. He's also the prophet Samuel. And there's two books in the Bible named after him. And in the first of these books, we read the story of the finest victory that Samuel ever has. It's there in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And after this great victory, they raise what's called a memorial stone and they call it Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means thus far has God helped us. In other words, God has helped us so far. But then we turn the page and we get to chapter 8 and about 20 to 25 years have passed. And during that time, Samuel is kind of semi-retired and his sons have taken over. But his sons are useless, as we say in Cork. They were corrupt. They were bad guys. They were no good. And so the people came to Samuel and said, listen, Samuel, we need to discuss this. And this is what it records. It says the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are old now and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. That's what we want. We want what everyone else has. Do you know what it says? Do it says in the Old Testament that the people began to grumble? The people began to grumble against Moses. The people didn't start grumbling against Moses. A person started to grumble against Moses. And then another person started grumbling when he heard that grumbling. Because he said, this is my opinion. And then suddenly an atmosphere of grumbling came out. Give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. And Samuel was displeased at their request because he was kind of being rejected too. And he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. For they're not reject they are rejecting me. Not you. They're rejecting me. Not you. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way the king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on to the Lord the warning, passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking for a king. This is how the king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers. Making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains. Not a, not a great role. Some will be forced to plow his fields, harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and his chariot equipment. So that's warning number one. He's going to take your sons. It goes on to say this. He will take your daughters from you. And he will force them to cook and bake and make perfume. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards, olive groves. And give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. They were asking for slavery. They wanted to go back to Egypt. God had freed them for slavery and in the process of asking for the king Samuel said, you're going to become slaves again if I give you a king because he's going to take and take and take and take and take. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your cattle. He's going to take your herds. He's going to take your grapes. He's going to take your, your grain. He's going to take your slaves. He's going to take your means of production. He's going to take everything that you own. Do you realize that? And the people said, 
When that day comes, sorry, the Lord says, you will beg for relief from me for the king that you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. So a day is going to come when you say, Lord, would you please take away the king I asked for? And the Lord says, I'm not going to help you when that happens because you've asked for the king. You asked for him. This is the king that you wanted. I warned you. He's going to take and take and take and take and take. But you still want the king. And this is what it says. It says, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want the king, they said. We want to be like the other nations around us. Even with all of those warnings. They said, no, we still want the king. Just give us the king. Just give us what we want. After all of those warnings, were they thick? Could they not see it right in front of their eyes? Could they not see how the kings of other nations ruled their people? Because that's how Samuel was describing this king. Because that's what kings did. They take and they take and they take. And so they get their first king. And with exception, a couple of very minor exceptions, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, David for most of his life, they had awful kings. One after another who led them into civil war, who, who took their sons into useless, pointless wars, who caused famine and drought and hunger and starvation in the land, who were wicked and corrupt and who stole from them. And the people still said, we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. And I want to say this to you, brothers and sisters. Forgive me if I get wound up about it. If you want to put any other king into your life other than Jesus Christ, he will take from you. Any other king will take from you. If it is your career, or your husband, or your wife, whether it is your reputation, whether it is your money, your job, your sense of social standing, your career climbing, your degrees, your education, whatever it is, whether it's your past or your future, you put any king on the throne of your heart and it will take and take and take and take until there's nothing left to give. That's what happens to people when they put another king on the throne of their hearts. And it goes on to this. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Give them the king they want, he said. Do as they say. They want a king. Give them a king. You know, the writer George MacDonald says this. He says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. In the end, he says, there are two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. That's the two types of people. That's it. There's kind of no other kind of group. There's for and against, with or against. Light and darkness, it's all there. Those who say to God, thy will be done. May we be those people. Can I get an amen? amen. You see, because something happens. When we put that king on the throne of our hearts, and I know loads of people who have other kings on the thrones of their hearts. And I know this, I put Jesus on the throne of my heart when I was 18 years of age. And he has been my king ever since then. But I want to say, I have often been a rebellious and reluctant subject of King Jesus. I've got to tell you the truth. I haven't always been the best subject. I haven't always been the most faithful and the most loyal and the most committed and the most obedient subject. Thankfully, that was more in my earlier years than my latter years, just in case you're getting worried about who's preaching here this morning. But I haven't always been the most loyal and faithful subject. And that's okay. He knows that. But he's still my king. Amen. And you may not be his most loyal. You may feel disloyal. You may feel like you've let him down. You may feel like you've slipped or fallen and caused another situation. That's okay. He still knows that you're, he's your king. Hallelujah. 
Let me tell you something else. This is really important. Jesus also, if you put him as king on your heart, he will take from you. He will take from you. But what will he take? He'll take your sin and he'll take your shame. He'll take your faults and your feelings. Your feelings. Let me pick up my piece of paper. He'll take your failures and your fears. He will take your regrets and your worries. He'll take your burdens and your brokenness. He'll take your doubts and your anxieties. And he will take your cares and concerns and make them his own. That's what he takes from you. No way does he take. Our God is not only a God who takes, but we know this if you read your Bible from cover to cover. Our God is a God who gives, and he gives lavishly. When you put Jesus as king in your heart, you know what he gives? He gives you freedom and forgiveness. He'll give you favor and life and hope. He'll give you provision. He will give you protection. He'll give you peace. He'll give you the words and the wisdom that you need. He'll give you grace. He will give you rest. He will give you power. He'll give you his spirit. He'll give you strength. He'll give you life. And he will ultimately give you eternal life. Thank his wonderful name. Hallelujah.